0: Hi, Sanjeev, welcome to Network Capital. Uh, We're thrilled to host you on our masterclass today. Um, Today, we're going to dive deep into your career as a policymaker, a writer, as well as a banker. So Sanjeev, there are many ways to describe you. Uh, Could you tell us the way you identify yourself? Who are you and what do you do today?
1: Um, Well, uh, as you all know, uh, my day job is as principal economic advisor to the government of India. So um, I am uh, uh, obviously based in the government in North Block. Uh, I'm speaking to you from North Block. And what I do in my day job is look at economic policies from a very big picture sort of way, uh, so I'm um, I'm one of the authors of the uh, economic survey that uh, you may uh, come across every year. That is uh, just done before the budget, and of course I have I uh, provide inputs into other various kinds of policy making, whether it's the budget itself or other various reforms that uh, you may uh, from time to time here read about. Uh, many of them I have worked on. So uh, that's basically what I do for a day job. I also have other lives, as you all know, Um, I'm a career uh, financial markets person, Uh, not a mainline banker, Uh, I was always an economist, uh, but um, I worked in the financial markets, uh, thats bonds, uh, equity markets and so on, and I used to be uh, the managing director and global strategist of Deutsche Bank, uh, where I spent many years, um, much of it in Singapore, but also in other places like Mumbai. Um, And I have uh, another life as a writer. Uh, um, As you mentioned, we've read some of my books. So that is a completely different life. And uh, I do a bunch of other things as well. Uh, I'm very interested in uh, urban design. So I've done some work in that over the years, Um, particularly uh, for for a while I was a part of the subcommittee in Singapore of the Singapore government, looking at uh, how to rethink Singapore as it evolves. So um, yeah, so I've done many of these things, many of these hats, and in some ways, in my head, they're not quite separate lives because they're all interconnected. It may not be obvious to everybody, but in my head, they're all interconnected.
0: So on Network Capital, we love to explore this interconnectedness because many times us, our subscribers who come from all parts of the world, uh, come to us with this question, you know, what should I do with my life? And that's a very meta question to start. So, they would would love to explore when you were a student, and now has there been a common thread, or have your curiosities and passions changed with uh, with time?
1: So, if you met me at the age of seventeen, um, uh, you would have uh, seen somebody who is very much what what would be called a science type, um, very much a maths physics. Uh, uh, you know, biology, those were the kinds of things I'm much more likely to be spending my time doing uh, rather than imagine me as a writer. So you would probably have guessed that I was going to be uh, probably, you know, you, you would have more likely thought of me, uh, a future me as being uh, maybe working in Silicon Valley as a, or, or something like that, ra- rather than think of me sitting in Mumbai trying to make... Uh, uh, policy and certainly not think of me as some guy who is going to be ever writing best-selling books. So, so that is how you would have predicted me. Uh, yeah. But as it happens to be, uh, I learned fairly early uh, in life that uh, things go the way that they do. And if you read my, many of my writings, I, uh, my the philosophical architecture of it is based on something called complexity theory. I don't know if you it ever came across, but if you read my writings and pay a little attention, you will see it's everywhere. And complex systems are systems which uh, evolve in their own way. So this is the world of butterfly effects and unintended consequences. This is not a world that, uh, a Newtonian world of uh, equilibriums and trends. So since that is my philosophical framework, in order to be true to myself, I have essentially let life happen to me Mm -hmm. and gone with the flow. Now that doesn't mean that I am a happy go lucky or uncompetitive person. I'm an extremely competitive guy. But I, by and large, let uh, the system decide where it's going. Occasionally, I will avoid things I definitely don't want to do. But I have, you know, before I became a financial markets economist, I did not even know that such a career existed. I've ended up mostly known for non-fiction books, but in fact, when I began writing books, I actually intended to write short stories. I did eventually uh, write the uh, publish my short stories, but after I was already,
0: I must say, yeah.
1: Thank you, but let me say some of those short stories were written well before I wrote the non-fiction, and I became known as a non-fiction writer, and then. Because I suppose my publisher sort of maybe thought they were doing me a favor and allowed me to publish my short stories. But I was only able to do it after I had already become well known as a nonfiction writer. But that was what I originally set out to do. And similarly, I've always, always been interested in urban design. And I lived in Singapore. So I wrote a bunch of articles, which for whatever reason the political leadership in Singapore found interesting. And I ended up sort of getting into urban design. Um, so, and, also, and then, you know, I like cycling, so I ended up, I got the opportunity of cycling around Singapore and marking out some of their cycling tracks. So if you go to Singapore and cycle around, uh, it's quite possible that you are cycling around on some of those cycling paths that I had wrecked. So wow. I have lived, done many things along the way, and somewhere along the way, I have ended up here in Mumbai, uh, in Delhi, um, doing policy. Um, would I have predicted it 20 years ago? Uh, no. But I, I have not attempted in any way to, to kind of uh, keep it on a, uh, on a track. I, by and large, let it flow. As long as it didn't end up somewhere which I knew I was going to dislike. I otherwise let it do what it does.
0: Understood. So this is a really interesting way of thinking, like complexity theory and art of following your curiosity. Because passions change, people change, economies, context, everything changes. So. Um, now, now that you look back, uh, there have been some things that have been, uh, you know, bringing all of these experiences together. One, say your your um, insights into India, the historical perspective, uh, looking at it from the lens of say geography, looking at say the Indic civilization in a way, and even policy making. So these are not things that uh, that have just happened to you. You've been working at it consciously or unconsciously for a while. Where did that interest come? Where did you first realize that uh, even though people might think you're a science guy, you, you're drawn towards the liberal arts side of things? Or was there some inflection point early on in your school or college days?
1: No, I don't think uh, there was any particular inflection point. I've kind of generally built along. The most important thing in, for me is that I am generally a very curious person. And so I'm one of those strange people who reads uh, scientific journals uh, on weekends for fun. (laughs) So uh, uh, a geeky thing to do, I know, but I do that. I I actually will. So the reason I got into complexity theory is actually from the maths. So, you know, I picked up some textbook uh, on complexity maths and networks uh, maths and began reading them and solving the equations. So I know this is completely geeky. But on the other hand, much of my insights into this doesn't come from the maths. It comes from my interest in Shakta philosophy actually, of Hinduism. You know, the, the Shakti worshipping lineage of Hindu philosophy, uh, which is also, by the way, all about randomness, uncertainty, complexity, uh, and non-linearity. So uh, while the formal maths interests me, but my intuitive part comes actually from religious philosophy. So. And I have tied them in my head in different ways. So if you see, for example, the way we dealt with the current, um, you know, pandemic, Hmm. where does the thinking behind it come from? The thinking comes from the same complexity theory thinking, which is you you hedge for the very worst, but you accept the uncertainty of the situation and you have a feedback loop based response system to whatever happens, rather than having a upfront view of how things will pan out Mm -hmm. so if you went back a full year for example this time next last year uh we had very little information about how this is what was going to happen we knew something had happened in china yeah and we knew it had spread to italy and we knew nothing else so how do you deal with this so like every government we went and asked people okay tell us what is your best bet on how Uh, to deal with it. And then, you know, the virus experts, some of them told us, Oh, don't worry about it. It's just a bad flu. You'll remember that. And you'll also remember there were others who said, you know, hundreds of millions of people are infected. Millions would be dead by July and so on. Now, different governments around the world took the view that, okay, let's choose amongst this, this range of forecasts, which one we think is the best. So that's how you ended up with, for example, the Swedish model, <clears throat> or the British government going for herd immunity, then changing its mind and so on. We dealt with it in a different way. We assumed that nobody knew what was going on. Hmm. And so how did we deal with it? We dealt with it by doing a full lockdown in the beginning. That was not because we thought the worst was going to happen. It was just a hedge to the very worst that could happen. And then we, what we did is we used that time to create quarantining facilities, testing facilities, etc., and gather more information. And then we did a feedback loop, organic evolution over time, updating our information on a Bayesian way without having a preconceived notion about how this is going to evolve. So it was a feedback loop, fast response, rather than investing in uh, predicting where it would go. You can clearly see how how it links to the previous discussion I was saying about responding uh, to emerging and evolving situations. Those of you who come from a technology background will clearly recognize this as agile. right? So this is basically the same idea and it comes from complexity theory and from Shakta philosophy, both of which have the same basic point that you do not spend most of your energy in trying to fight the evolution of time because we, we assume the world is a chaotic, uncertain place. And time is the ultimate arbiter. I mean, the idea of Kali, dark. for example. What is Kali? Kali is the goddess of time. And she looks the way that she does because ultimately time devours everything. So if you, if you, by the way, read my book, Ocean of Churn, it is dedicated to Kali. It says, the dark one, she who, the goddess of time, she who devours the mightiest of empires and the greatest of men so it so this is a this is a philosophical construct and i am living that in my personal life but also if you can see in policy making that's exactly the same thing i'm doing
0: yeah many times when people have asked you questions about uh, you know some of the economic steps that you might have taken or suggested you're, uh, you come back to uh, the importance of being agile, taking feedback from the system, and then you, know, you won't get it right immediately, but you take an iterative approach. Interestingly, it is also an approach that people take in startups, uh, in companies that are growing pretty fast, because it's hard to know, um, you know what's going in the future. But sir, so still, like as a finance person, as a policy person, you also need to get things right. So, uh, are there some uh, mental models or principles that you followed um, in in your life as a as a banker or as a policymaker that has helped you well um, in order to make what uh, Philip Tetlock says future cast better?
1: So, as I said, <clears throat> there are a few things. Um, one of them is flexibility will always beat strength so plans are important not because in order to be able to work out exactly how they will work out whether it's a startup or even a large company or even a government plans are useless in in future we tried five-year plans up to 1991 they were in economic disaster not just in india soviet union collapsed on this you know, one of the major problems with urban planning in India is master plans. Because master plans, by definition, become outdated. You know, all the all the good things that happen in, uh, in India happen despite the plan, not because of the plan. Right. So, the point is, therefore, are plans useless? No. Plans are useful for working out what the landscape is. Hmm. Not for acting on them into time, but to work out what the options are to do a stock analysis of what are your resources, what is the worst cases that can possibly happen. So it's a good stock taking. Plans are extremely bad for implementation and execution. Right, You shouldn't waste your time planning for purposes of execution. Their plans are great for stock taking. So any successful businessman, politician, writer, you name it, you, when you start writing a book, for example, you may have a general plan about you know I'm going to write about a subject. You may even have a sort of an end, sort of an ending in your head. But as you write, you change your mind about things. Or at least all good writers do. Your plot may take you somewhere else. You may have to discover a better way to end things. If you're a nonfiction writer, you'll find new facts you hadn't thought about. So <clears throat> you have to allow for the evolution to happen, and this is a very important uh, principle. Right. The other principle, by the way, is, comes from my favorite uh, um, Irish philosopher, who incidentally is also well-known as an MMA fighter. By the way, I am also a big martial arts uh, enthusiast. I'm myself a black belt in Taekwondo. So, uh, there is a, a fighter called Conor McGregor. and I don't know if you uh, follow MMA. But Connor is, has a very famous saying, which of some versions of it are there in every martial arts. Anybody who's done martial arts will be taught some version of this, which is that precision beats power and timing beats speed. Okay. Powerful. Okay. It's a very important insight. By the way, it's true of most sports. If you If you play any sport, you will see hitting it hard is one thing but if you time it correctly even in cricket the best, best guys actually spend time timing it rather than hit, whacking it necessarily hard and precision uh, 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 is very important now immediately people say how are you precise and um, uh, and flexible at the same time right people say hard. you can only be precise if you plan it so then you have to understand the distinction between strategy and tactics. People who do not understand the difference between strategy and tactics have completely missed the point about most of what I've just said. See, when you have to act, you have to be precise. When you have to have a general strategy, you have to be flexible. So let me give you illustrations. You should never master plan a city rigidly because it then stops it from evolving. The success of a city like Singapore is entirely based that every few years they reinvent the city, completely flexibly. That's why it succeeds. You know, Singapore became an independent country in 1965. That is about the same time that Chandigarh was, um, uh, and all those various planned cities in India, Durgapur, Purbanpur, etc. A bit. But we have fetish made a fetish out of Chandigarh's plan. So the net result is Chandigarh is basically an expensive subsidy scheme for retired and serving bureaucrats. It doesn't have any zing at all. The extent it has zing is outside of the plan in Mohali. Right. Whereas Singapore has exactly this opposite approach. It allows for complete evolution. Okay, so that is the strategy. It's a flexible strategy. That's why I keep telling people, if you want to build a Singapore in India, It is your best bet is to manage Gurgaon better rather than to improve on Chandigarh. No matter what you do with Chandigarh, the best you will end up is becoming a Brazilian or a Canberra. But if you manage Gurgaon well, you'll end up with a Singapore. So the DNA of Singapore and Gurgaon actually more similar. Okay. So the point I'm making is the flexibility part. This is the strategy of flexibility, but tactics have to be precise. When you build the actual building, you can't just allow it to evolve. Some guys to sit down and work it out exactly. So the individual bits, the tactics have to be precisely mapped out. But the overall has to be allowed to evolve. Have you, have you now got a sense of what I am talking about?
0: Uh, clearly, sir. But uh, we would like to uh, dive this strategy versus tactic debate a bit more. Uh, Many people think that uh, Chandigarh is actually a remarkably successful uh, city or a remarkably well-planned city and you know your contrarian take is that actually it's not because its rigidity in design uh, is preventing it from evolving. Same is true for economic systems. If you look at um, if you look at say policy making or Indian policy making in general, Are we better at strategy or are we better at tactic or are we good at both? Because you've written in your book several times that there are challenges that exist, legal bottlenecks, uh, the ease of doing business, which is a bit of a challenge within the government, so to speak. Uh, What's your thought on that? And how can we get better at both strategy and uh, tactics um, in India?
1: So I think the, the thing that... In one of the biggest failures in India was this underlying idea that a bunch of wise men sitting in Planning Commission knew how the world was going to evolve, and they were going to tell everybody how it was going to evolve, and that's how things would work. And so, you know, if you will hear this very commonly in India, plan acha tha, but implementation acha now, what is the point of the plan being great if the implementation is not so great? And we are repeatedly managing to fail at it, suggesting that there must be some problem in either the plan or the implementation or maybe the whole strategy itself is wrong. Because this right. unfortunately is okay for doing rigid things like designing a car. Okay, a rigid thing like a car, you have a good design and hopefully a good engineer put it together. So There you can have this, the plan is good and the implementation is bad debate. Hmm. In an organic system, there is no distinction because it must be an iterative process going in all kinds of directions. So this idea that plan was good and implementation was bad is an irrelevant point. As Got long it. as the results are bad, the results are bad. It is hmm. entirely pointless to have this debate whether the plan was good or the implementation was good. You can have a bad plan, good implementation, it works. So that's how it is. How does it matter? What matters is you have feedback loops. That allow you to adjust along the way. That's what great businesses do. If you look at the business plans of any great and successful business, what turned out very often is completely different from what they set out to do. True. Right. So <clears throat> this is, uh, you know, um, th- this is how life turns out to be. And I'm just pointing out to you that that is true for policy making. That you have to be agile. You have to have some. That doesn't mean that there aren't some basic principles, but those are rules of thumb that you have to have. And so there, you do need certain areas, you do need regulation, but they have to be simple regulations. They cannot be prescriptive regulations because it is not possible in an uncertain world to prescribe how things will work out. So I'll give you one, one thing, which, by the way, is a subject of a chapter in the latest economic survey. It's chapter six in the economic survey. Where basically we say... That look, we understand that, you know, you do need regulations uh, uh, for various economic activities. That's fair enough. However, one of the big problems in Indian regulations is that we work under the assumption that we can, that human beings can work out every possible outcome that may happen in future. And consequently, the regulation needs to have in it worked out how, what should be done in every, Possible outcome. That is the reason it becomes very rapidly very complicated. Because obviously, if you try to work out every possible outcome, then you will have you will have to have a regulation for every possible outcome, and very quickly it becomes a mess. Right. And therefore, all our regulations end up being ridiculously over over the top. Instead, what you need to do is to accept the fact that you cannot regulate for the rest, uh, for every situation. And instead what you do is you aim instead for very simple regulations, which take into account most of the situations and maybe at least the worst possible outcomes. And then let the world evolve as it goes. Don't try and solve for every problem because the cost of trying to solve for every problem is higher than things occasionally going wrong a little bit. Yeah. Right. Now this is really important principle. This is a very important principle and very simple insight. And then you adjust along the way. Now, since I'm allowing for things to go wrong from time to time, I then need to spend energy, not in trying to have better regulation, but in investing in corrective action after things go wrong. So that is why you will see why do I, I am one of the biggest advocates of something called the insolvency in bankruptcy code.
0: Yeah, an Why? important
1: you know. thing. Cleaning up after things go wrong is is more important than I I'm trying to prevent it from going wrong. The earlier system would have been if only we had great rules, then companies will not go right uh, wrong. No, I assume things will go wrong. I'm I'm more interested in having a good cleanup at the end. For the same reason, if you ask me what great reforms I would advocate into the future. I am a big advocate of legal reforms. I would argue that the single biggest reforms you need to do in the country. Why? Because contract enforcement is a very important part of ex post things going wrong. Yeah. So contract enforcement in my view is more important than having better regulation.
0: And I think there are about 40 million cases still pending. It's very difficult to have a civil society. And you cannot billion. have
1: a society with, uh, with, uh, with 37 million cases in the system. So this is, you can clearly see how this somewhat organic, flexible approach, philosophical approach, is fundamentally different as a way of thinking about the world, about life, um, than the idea that, oh, you know, I need to have this clear plan and single-mindedly go for it. Uh, I'm in fact arguing against this as even a life strategy. I and mean, it's okay if you're Sachin Tendulkar, you have a clear skill and there is one clear way of monetizing it, then you know, please go ahead and you know, then have a single-minded focus. But for most of us, we p- probably not very clear what our talent is. There are many things we can possibly do reasonably well um, and many things we will probably be disasters at. We have probably a general sense of that, but no specific sense of we- what we should do so when you choose a career, I would argue may work out what you definitely don't want to do and hedge those out because clearly you're going to be unhappy doing those things. So hmm. most of the rest, just be flexible because we don't know what kind of jobs will appear in the future. I spent 20 years plus of my life working in a field which I had no awareness of till I actually began doing that field, which was to become a financial markets economist. So... Um, you know, and that will be true of many of the people who are hopefully listening to this. I mean, who knows what kind of jobs will emerge. Many of you will uh, hopefully become harbingers uh, of that change. Yeah, and in, maybe yeah. you will become entrepreneurs and invent those fields or scientists which make those discoveries. So why should I prescriptively tell you what to do? I would say just call out what you definitely don't want to do. And the, for the rest, go for
0: it. That's a really important insight. Uh, by 2030, World Economic Forum data suggests that about 80, 85% of uh, jobs uh, that will exist don't exist today. So you can't really, again, like make a plan, a 10 year so plan. Or hold it right plan. There.
1: So hold it right there. I will ask you how does World Economic Forum know it's 85 or 80 or 2? My own point is I don't know. So even World Economic Forum is just making it up. That number is actually completely nonsense. So the point I'm making is stop thinking like this at all. Maybe there will be the same jobs as, there is a small chance that all the jobs will exactly what they are today. And there is a small chance that 100% will be different from what they are today. In there somewhere, there'll be some mix, which will be different, similar, whatever. Don't spend your time thinking like this at all. I'm trying to argue around against this whole World Economic Forum thinks that they're 85% of the same. My argument is World Economic Forum has no clue. Neither does anyone
0: else. Which makes it really challenging uh, you know, uh, for young professional students, Gen Z, because uh, this whole career advice space is constantly filled with advice like this. Oh, the world is going to change this way. Listen to me. Um, or uh, the Oxford Internet Institute says this, World Economic Forum says this, Government of India says this. It's really challenging to be a young professional or student. You would know you have uh, two young, uh, uh, young uh, children. So if you were to look back at your high school years or SRCC time or before you had headed off uh, to Oxford, um, what were some things that were that you were looking to solve? Uh, What were uh, you said that you had no idea about this financial market space uh, before you started doing it? So, how did you actually get that job?
1: So, remember, um, I'm the generation that went went through the 1991 crisis. So, the 1991 reforms that happened uh, transformed India, and it happened while I was at university. So life before 1991 and after 1991 were radically different in terms of the job opportunities in the country. So when I was in high school... Many of school, us were
0: not born there, sir. Would you, would you yeah. give us some examples so of said, what might that look like?
1: So when I was at high school, this is before 91, um, <clears throat> this was an era where you know, uh, job opportunities in India were either you joined the uh, civil service and you took the UPSC exam, Uh, or you joined a public sector unit uh, of some sort. That was basically... or you went abroad. So that is basically what my generation did. Um, So, while I was at university, 1991 reforms happened. And much of these these private sector jobs, entrepreneurship, IT sector, mm, pharmaceutical sector, all the things that you now... or even, you know, people making a livelihood out of writing books or whatever, much of this is post-1991 phenomenon. We, before that, could not imagine this. In fact, uh, you couldn't even imagine making, even if you could, you could, you could barely make your life uh, through, you know, sports, for example. Today, IPL has you know, the Indian sports team, a few handful of 11 people may make enough money to be able to live off it. But living it to sort of uh, creating a livelihood out of even sports was a difficult activity. True. Okay, even if you were top-end sportsman. So all of this IPL is a creation of the last decade or a little bit more maybe. So uh, the point I'm making is that many of these career options and all of these things are effectively post-1991 phenomena. And I come from the generation which was the first generation that took advantage of this. So... By the time I entered the workforce in 1995, um, many of these things were completely new in India. Right. Um, by the way, I mean, uh, financial markets economist is a fairly esoteric uh, job profile, even internationally. But it it didn't even exist. There was no, no financial markets, anything called a financial markets economist in India. Even globally, there were very few. Right. So I was... Looking the first one or two financial markets economists uh, India ever had. You're right. Got so <clears throat> I came back from Oxford to Mumbai. Uh, and then, so which year course, was this? Uh, which year
0: did 1995. You come back? 1995.
1: You back. Got it. Got it. So, <clears throat> yeah. And then, of course, I then, uh, you know, when I went out again, because I, would, I outgrew nearly being the India guy and became the more the Asia guy and then the global guy. So, but one of the reasons I was able to uh, probably uh, progress very quickly, relatively, was I was en- entering an empty space.
0: You, yeah, right. You created a blue ocean for yourself, first mover. Yeah,
1: yeah. it was completely open. I mean, um, you know, right out of university, I was already on CNBC lecturing people how to invest in financial markets. Uh, you know, because CNBC itself was brand new. Hmm. So so people have to understand that these were all completely new jobs, just like you're thinking of jobs that may or may not be created by AI today. You know, these kinds of jobs were completely new at that point in time. You know, venture capital was a completely new idea um, of that time. Many of my contemporaries uh, who went into the IT industry. Um, But when I was uh, in high school, you know, we didn't really think of anybody uh, going and making a career out of software companies, but my generation and, you know, went on and, uh, you know, they were uh, went on and made very successful careers out of doing information technology, software, BPO outsourcing, and all those kinds of things. Um, So this is the generation that those things opened up. So now there was no way on earth. When I was 17, for me to have ever predicted that this was what was going to happen. Hmm.
0: But you kept an Just open me. mind?
1: I kept an open mind about it. That's the main thing. I Basically, I would say, I kept an open mind and let life more or less happen to me. As I said, there are some things I'm not likely to ever become good at. Like, for example, in becoming a rock star. So, um, you know, so I, that's not what I ended up doing and i probably wouldn't be uh, a great person in coding software so i never went into coding software but you know i'm good at doing other things i have explored those things many of these things you know would not have been something i would have thought about as i said i would not have imagined myself being a best-selling writer but i have done that it's already done and dusted so you know so that's something that emerged One could argue that that was also part of a new field that emerged um, more recently. While in the 90s, I began doing finance and those kinds of things. In the 2000s or even in the 2010s, there was an explosion of uh, Indian uh, literature writing, particularly in English, but in other languages as well. So that is the phenomena, for example, where Chetan Bhagat, Amish Tripathi and uh, Ashwin Sanghi they were completely new writers, were writing in an Indian idiom, And they were great innovators in their own right. Because hmm. um, writing that, you know, before that, Indian English writing were basically written with a very stilted, you know, literary style that was aimed not at readership, but at winning awards. Whether Indian awards or international awards. But that was basically a small coterie, mostly South Mumbai, Central Delhi crowd which wrote a certain kind of literary style. They were not writing for a mass audience at all. It was Chetan Bhagat and Amish who completely ignored that formula and began writing in a much more Indian idiom. And when they were initially writing, let me tell you about more than a decade from 15 years ago, Hmm. uh, many people mocked their writing styles. It's only when they super successful. It's a different matter, they became super successful. And both of them, and then Ashwin Sanghi, uh, and many of them, by the way, when they wrote their first round of books, they were all came from a non-literary background. Ashwin Sanghi is a businessman, um, uh, like me. Both uh, Amish and uh, Chetan are bankers, um, and so on and so forth. So many of these people came from other backgrounds, and the reason they were able to write, some of them self-published their initial books, like Amish because nobody was willing to publish their books. So they had some other way where they made their money and they were doing this for fun. It's a different matter, it became super successful. But they just, so they were also, and why were they able to succeed? Because they they did it, it was an empty space and they kind of filled it up.
0: Yeah. It always happens, you have to create your category of one. Uh, In fact, uh, in one of my Harvard Business Review articles, I said that, you know, if there's one advice that young people such as myself should really follow, it's to build your cre- category of one instead of competing with people on same finite goals. And I have noticed that in your career as a writer, as a as a banker, you've always tried to create your category of one. But in when you create your category of one, there's also a role of luck, serendipity. So one of our previous guests on the show was uh, Mukund Rajan, who I asked this question as well, and I'll ask this to you. So in, in your time in Oxford, uh, Uh, What did you learn and what was the role of serendipity in launching you to the next uh, career step, if at all?
1: There is plenty of serendipity, but as with everything, uh, you know, luck comes to a prepared mind. If you're already prepared for taking uh, risks, uh, then you will take those risks. Uh, If you've already closed yourself off, then you won't. Uh, so I have, uh, uh, as I said, I, I had no particular aspiration in turning up at Oxford. Um, in fact, as I said, I I had applied to study robotics and other things in, uh, when I was at university. I just ended up studying, uh, at a whim almost, uh, studying economics at Sriram College. Um, and then, you know, I had no particular plan of what to do after Sriram College, I just happened apply for one scholarship, which was the road scholarship, uh, which is, as you know, probably the most difficult scholarship to get anywhere in the world. Uh, But I had no plan. So I randomly applied for exactly one scholarship. I got it. Uh, And if, you know, the probability of having got it is very low. So in some ways, this is also serendipity. It's possible I wouldn't have got it. I would have done something else. But since I got it, I went to Oxford and I spent three years there, much of it doing things like rowing and and traveling around the world, and I did all kinds of things like traveling around rebel-controlled Guatemala. I went and spent a summer in South Africa while it went through the transition away from apartheid, and did many other things. Um, And I'm, by the way, very much into kayaking and canoeing, so I spent some time in Canada uh, canoeing around uh, uh, some of the lakes there, and did various other things. Um, in the end of that, you know, it happened to be that uh, somebody was offering, uh, you know, I decided at the end of when my scholarship money ran out, I was offered to continue and finish my PhD, but I'm not an academic type. So I, the one thing I knew, yeah, why it matters, you know what you don't want to do. Uh, I didn't want to carry on for another two, three years and write a thesis. That was just not me. So I decided, okay, uh, what I will do is, I will instead apply for jobs. So I applied for jobs in various places. And what happened is that I was offered an interview with um, uh, a company called Morgan Grenfell, which was then a very big uh, financial firm in London. Uh, And I was, uh, same time I was given a uh, interview offer in Singapore from an unknown company called Crosby Securities which no longer exists um and the problem was on the same day and in those days you had to choose because you know you couldn't really go back and forth on email so um so i had to choose between whether i wanted to go for the morgan grenfell interview in london which was next door or go to singapore and take this other interview now the choice was made purely on the following basis that Crosby Securities provided me with a first-class ticket back and forth from Singapore. Hmm. And uh, I said, what the heck, Um, you know, who knows when I'll ever ever be able to travel first class. So I, um, you know, uh, took the flight to Singapore on purely the whim that they were providing me the opportunity to travel to a place I had never been before. Um, And I had no particular ex- expectation or idea of what I would do, but it happened to be I got into that flight, went to Singapore, got a job, and ended up uh, working for this firm uh, called Crosby Securities. I worked with them in Singapore. I worked with them in Mumbai, and then ultimately I joined Deutsche Bank, which ironically had just taken over Morgan Grenfell. So I also worked oh. ultimately in Deutsche Morgan Grenfell as well later on.
0: Such is life. Yeah. Um, this is fascinating. So that's, that's, that's essentially how your career started. But uh, yeah. <laughs> you also grew pretty fast if you look at your time in the industry, like as you said, India first, then South Asia, then Southeast Asia, and then the world. So um, there, uh, we study this uh, messy middle that happens uh, to young professionals where it's sometimes challenging to navigate the middle of your career. So, how did you grow faster than, say, your peers? Was this uh, so plan? The
1: thing you is that I'm, I'm not spending a great time, deal of time planning with any of this. Hmm. All I'm doing is, when I'm doing something, I do a very good job of it. The tactical part of it, the precision part of it. So, when I'm doing something, I'm putting my 100% in. Okay? I'm not relaxed about the 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 bit that I'm doing at that point in time. There I am obsessive about detail. But I'm not too bothered about the wider where it is going thing. So I didn't manage the middle career at all. I, in fact, did something even worse. I, as you pointed out, I rose very quickly because it was an empty space in some ways. I was the first generation of uh, economists for India and maybe even in the Asia, there were one or two who were a little older than me. So, there was an earlier generation, but a very thin layer of it. So, very quickly, I became the chief economist covering Southeast Asia and India, also, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, by in 2008, I'm, you know, I, I had already done quite a few years of this, sense of well-paying uh, and it's a well paying profession. And I also made some good bets in the mar- financial markets. Um, I decided in, at, uh, to just chuck it all up. Uh, in uh, 2008, moved back to India, and I spent two years traveling all over India with my kids, who were quite small then. Um, so if you're telling me that there was some plan and idea behind it, there wasn't. Uh, when you read my book, Land of Seven Rivers, it's based on the research I did while traveling around in 2009 and 10. And then I wrote a book on that. Uh, but then I also got re- re- bored of retired life. So then I went back to financial markets in 2011 and became Deutsche Bank's global strategist. So, so you know, I have done fair fair amount of random things along the way. So if you tell try to tell me that there was some grand plan in it, there isn't.
0: This is really insightful uh, for for our subscribers around the world because uh, what your career principle shows that uh, you know once the plans have limitations second you need to be great at your job third you need to choose well create your category of one and fourth is that you know um, you know take it easy like you know keep an open mind take feedback and uh, uh, see where complexity theory in life takes you so i think this is really important i wish more people would get this advice early on unfortunately in india and many other countries this is not the prevailing advice we want to control systems we want to control um, uh, eventual yes, outcomes. Very often, very
1: often, you're given a completely useless piece of advice: is go there and live your dream. Now, it's all very good if you have a dream, then it's fine. You're that one percent who has one. Ninety-nine percent of us have no idea where we are headed, so you can't right. live a dream because you don't have any very clear dream. I mean, you may have a generic one uh, of some sort that you know you want, uh, whatever. You you want to visit a place, or you want a big house, or whatever that those kinds of dreams, man. But very few people have a clear dream of what they want to do. Uh, so yeah, you know it's easier if you have a clear dream, then go ahead and do it. But 99% of people will have a fuzzy, uh, fuzzy view of the world, and I'm just pointing out to you that's perfectly all right.
0: You know, we run this uh, cohort-based fellowships. fellowship, uh, so it's called, I don't know what I want to do with my life, which is the most popular fellowship on Network Capital, because people from all walks of life, all age groups subscribe, because it's very challenging to figure out what to do. And uh, this is going to be a part of your uh, core curriculum there, where people will listen to your masterclass as one of the introductory sessions um just moving on if we look at a day in your life say as um as a global strategist or a lead economist and now as a policymaker we've seen writing has been something that you've been doing for a while writing debating so what does a day in your life really look like today and what did it look like when you were a global strategist or uh, a, a lead economist what do you, what do lead economists actually is- do
1: uh, well i can tell you what they do but i can tell you also that uh, there is no pattern to my daily life even today so even today uh, obviously there are some things there are some markers like you know office hours or something like that but i am a very free-flowing guy um, and it's not there you know different people do it differently some people have a fixed time on the day when they write uh, i don't i'm more likely to uh, spend one full weekend and f- write a full chapter out and then not write for weeks or even months, uh, because I can't, because you see, my primary job takes me, makes me travel, uh, economic crises happen. There's, you know, um, the last one year, no way I would have been able to predict that you'd have the, you know, my life would be taken over by the COVID crisis and the economic response we had to do to it. Um, and of course I had to work unbelievable hours, you know, literally keeping the system running Things are a little bit better now, but the last one year has been insane. I, I myself got COVID by the way, and I continued to work right through COVID. I didn't have a particularly bad version of it, thankfully. But you know, I, had, I was doing meetings on paracetamol, I was talking to investors, talking to press, right through my COVID um, illness um, uh, with, uh, you know, with, of course it's online, so I was, I was on quarantine, but uh, it was done on paracetamol. People may not even realize that but one had to do it. Um, so the point I'm making is, I don't have that kind of a pattern at all. Uh, you know, I travel, I also uh, chair the, um, uh, the G20 framework working group. And um, you know, the, uh, if you remember about when the pandemic started out, there was a complete breakdown worldwide of all kinds of things. Supply chains were breaking down, health protocols had broken down because the WHO didn't know what was going on. Um, uh, you know, movement of people were breaking down. There was all kinds of problems, financial markets were breaking down. And then, you know, so I worked with, uh, the G twenties, uh, 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 you know, all the top officials of the G 20, we worked out an action plan. Uh, a lot of it, I physically typed out on this computer that I'm speaking on today on this laptop. And so put that together. now that had to be done in weeks. We worked very hard. We got it done. And I had to obviously negotiate with all these governments and, you know, every government had its view. There were people vetoing various things. I had certain views of the world, um, you know, and so on. So all of that came together. And so all of this doesn't have any particular pattern. I'm presuming I'm not going to be facing a COVID type situation with both India and international situation like this every year, hopefully not. But, you know, I have dealt with it. Net result is I have written My literary activities have gone to zero in the last 12 months. I've not written anything. Uh, But, you know, uh, there'll be another. Yeah, I've written articles, but mostly if you notice, it's all economics related articles. Mm. And of course, I write the economic survey along with my colleagues. So uh, I've been writing, but not literary writing. I've Mm. published no books this time. So uh, this is how uh, life has evolved. I, is there a pattern to this? Absolutely no. no. There is no pattern to this at all. Um, so I'm one of those guys. Now this last weekend I decided to go out and go, go walking in the Aravali's for two days. Hmm. Um, um, you know, some, uh, even you know, sometimes I go and pump iron for a couple of hours. So, so there is no particular pattern to this. I'm not again a regular guy. Uh, I'll maybe one day I'll get up and go for a long run and run many kilometers but I may not then run for again several
0: weeks got it so like nothing too rigid um whatever you do you try and do it really well I think that would be uh, a way to look at your it could be
1: pretty much
0: yeah uh, and very quickly for uh, for uh people thinking about your day in your life so there's no fixed day in your life that you've established but the not way you sorry
1: so they can't be. So you see, yeah. I'm sometimes I'm traveling. Now I haven't traveled for the last one year very much, but I normally I'm traveling. I'm making presentations. At other time, I'm sitting in meetings. Other time I'm, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe promoting my books or somebody else, friend's books or you know, or I may do something completely different.
0: So right. there's
1: no pattern at all. And I'm very comfortable with it. That's the main thing. You have to be comfortable with this. Other people may not be comfortable with so much flow. So I don't invest in uh, trying to create patterns in my life. I invest in relationships instead. So I invest in relationships with my family. I'll invest with relationships. I have close friends, a few very close friends, and I invest in relationships with them. That is what I invest in. in, I don't invest in trying to make any particular... Uh, thing work in that sense. Understand? Um, you know whether it is. Uh, I'm not attempting to make a career in the way people think. Hmm. I'm more letting it happen.
0: It's an important lesson. Sir. It's an important life lesson and a career lesson that people should uh, keep in mind. Uh, you know, like you've talked about a wide range of things. Um, you want to f- just look at rethinking. What are some things that you rethink, rethought about your career, about your life, about what are things that you've changed your mind on? And uh, if you could talk us through from the work lens, what have you seen? What have you observed? More specifically, what advice would you give to, say, your 18-year-old self today or to a young person who comes to you um, who's perhaps struggling, who's going through a lot of uh, challenges? What, What would you want him or her to remember?
1: Um, I think much of what I will say is in line with what I have spoken all this while, because that, you know, people are told that go out and live your dream or find that one thing that you're really good at doing and go go with that. Now, it is true that there will be individuals for whom that is true. So there are people with clear dreams or they have one clear skill that they know and it's obvious what you should do with it. As I, yes. as I said, if you, if you are Sachin Tendulkar and you can clearly play cricket, then you should go out and try to be a part of the Indian cricket team. But for the vast majority of people, it's not very clear what it is. That doesn't mean that, that, that you won't discover what that one thing is. And very often you, may, you, you, you have to find that thing. And you may stumble upon it by chance. Uh, You may actually think that you're bad at doing that and it turns out you're good at doing it. So there are many ways of discovering yourself, so to speak. And I think you shouldn't uh, allow that, that thing to happen to you along the way. So while it may be that there are some things you are quite clear that you don't want to do and you clearly dislike it, then avoid those things, though that's a fair thing to do. So you hedge for the very worst, for the rest, you allow for an iterative process and to uh, to flow along. And if you do not have too heavy an expectation of where it is going to lead you, then you will find that life is an adventure, mm. and that it is the adventure the fun, not what you end up, uh, 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 not where you end up necessarily. So it is enjoying that process of adventure, and at every stage you do your best. And you may succeed, you may fail, that's all right. But I think too many people spend too much time having this clear thing that at so-and-so age I will do this and I must... There is no way on earth you can be able to predict that. If, uh, you know, uh, say Mahatma Gandhi had attempted to do that, then very likely he would never have gotten into the independence movement. More likely you would have had a legal firm in South Africa called... Uh, M.K. Gandhi and Sons. (laughs) So that is true for many other people. You look at any, if uh, you look at Bill Gates or uh, Zuckerberg and all these people, what were they trying to do? They went to Harvard. If you went by any conventional sense, they should have finished their degree and tried to get a job at IBM. But uh, Zuckerberg was actually trying to create, while at Harvard, a website so that he could look at pretty girls in the campus. That's what he really tried to do. And then he created that's what led to facebook i mean a completely different idea of what he was trying to do and what he ended up creating so this is how life evolves all the time and it is uh, enjoying that uh, journey that what it is about try a bunch of different things but the thing the the thing that keeps you going through all of this ups and downs and turns and twists is actually investing in personal relationship. That is what anchors you, not your plan. So right. you, I have always invested in the second order things. You invest in values. You invest in your personal anchors or relationships. You invest in your uh, cultural roots. I actually invest in those things. I don't invest in planning where the thing is going to lead me. But I have no idea where it is going to lead me.
0: Great, sir. Thank you so much for your time. We know you have to run, but we look forward to a round two, perhaps when I'm back in India. Uh, we have a summer school coming up for kids. We would love to have you you know, talk to us, to the young students who are joining us about your career and keeping an open mind. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you.